Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Red Flags, a podcast where we talk about the biggest issues and the biggest shows in true crime today, but also sometimes we really just focus on serial killers. I'm Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime author. And I am Karina Michelle. I started on TikTok at Daily True Crime Minisodes. Karina, today we have to talk about a big serial killer documentary, and then we have to talk about another serial killer. Are you ready? Yes, I'm so ready for this. Okay. After we talk about the documentary, we're going to delve into the case of John Wayne Gacy. And if you're out there rolling your eyes and saying, I know everything about Gacy, I don't need to hear any more— you're wrong. We're going to undermine some of the Gacy mythos. But first, let's talk about this new docuseries on Netflix about the serial killer Richard Ramirez. Karina, I know you finished it last night, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, all four episodes. It's called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, and it came out January 13th. And I want to know what you think about it. Richard Ramirez was a serial killer in the 80s in the Los Angeles area who murdered at least 13 people. He broke into people's houses, which is why he was nicknamed the Night Stalker in the press. The series portrays his crimes and the hunt to capture him. It's a good way to get into him and learn more about his crimes. I did feel like it was a very gruesome documentary, so definitely go in mind when you're watching that. Uh, all of the crime scene pictures are shown, and they kind of just put a very thin tape over victims' faces. But other than that, you see everything. Yes. Karina, this is going back to our very first episode of Red Flags, where we talked about crime scene photos. And I think we established that we are both anti. Yeah. Right? We don't want to see them. I was shocked that this show had no warning whatsoever 
before showing crime scene photos. Like, I actually have it pulled up on my screen right now to check the title, and it's playing the preview, and I just saw a crime scene photo in the preview. Mm -hmm. How do you not have to put up some sort of warning before you show me this really graphic content? I was actually reading a lot of articles about this, and there's a lot of people who felt like this. Like, it was very Mm -hmm. graphic. I saw that, too. Yeah. And then, but there's this division of people who are really into true crime who are like, this is kind of normal for us. But then also another side of the true crime world that are like, I really was not ready for that and was not expecting it. Yeah. So that's exactly how I was feeling. My takeaway was this is a series for the type of true crime fan that is very intense and wants to see the gore and just is maybe used to that or even seeks it out. I am not that true crime person. No. I I ended up pulling up another internet tab like in front of the show as I and just kind of listened to it because I was like I mean, should we tell our listeners, like, some of what they show? Yeah. We'll, war- we'll yeah, warn you spoil- since Netflix spoil- won't. Yeah. Trigger warning. <laughs> There's a lot of blood splatter. Like, mm-hmm. the camera kind of zooms in on the actual photos of the actual blood of his victims, which is very disturbing. Yeah. Every single crime that they talk about, they show you the entire crime scene. They do zoom into the victims, but again, they'll just put a very thin tape over their faces so you can still see their bodies and the wounds and everything. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like, I guess, to be respectful, they just take off the faces. Yeah. Later on in the fourth episode, they talk about groupies and how many Mm. groupies he had. And they showed a lot of the pictures that he was sent while he was in prison. And they're very graphic. I'm scandalized. Very scandalous. And what they do is that they just put a very thin tape over the women in the picture's eyes. So you can see (laughs) their bodies. You can see sort of their faces, but just their eyes are covered. And obviously, Uh if the woman is exposing her breasts, like you will see tape over her nipples. But that's pretty much it. Everything else you can see. Hmm. So they're really going for a no-holds-barred Richard Ramirez doc here. Yeah. I think they pushed the envelope as far as they could. Yeah, I I just think they should have warned viewers. Like, if you know that you're going to see that going in and you choose to see that, that's one thing. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to talk about is the branding of Richard Ramirez. Mm. He kind of branded himself and the media went with it. We've talked about serial killer brands before. Ted Bundy Mm -hmm. is like the hot lawyer. You know, Manson is like the crazy hippie. Ramirez to me is like the death metal bad boy. Yes. Serial killer, like... It gave me Mick Jagger vibes. Yes. Because he has that bone structure. And then there are some pictures of him in court where he has like these aviator sunglasses. Mm -hmm. Um, He has the pentagram tattoo and he has all that hair. And I felt like the documentary really did not deconstruct that brand at all, but Mm -hmm. rather push it forward. Like the font that they use is kind of that jagged purple 80s. Yeah. Like something cool is about to happen, dude. Yeah. Which I was kind of like, I don't know. Yeah. And then I rolled my eyes at the quotes from Richard himself. And like, I hate when people pretend like serial killers are deep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember his quote that was like, I was in alliance with the evil that is in human nature. It's like, yeah. Okay, that's just an undergrad <laughs> philosophy class way of saying, like, you're bad. <laughs> I'm not impressed by it, but it's like the documentary wanted me to think, wow, he's so no. deep. 
Anyway, do you feel like the show could have done more to undermine his own presenting of himself as cool? Yeah, because Mm -hmm. I think that at the end of the day, although I loved listening to the the cops' story and their perspective of it. There was Mm -hmm. one detective where his family moved out of the house because they felt so scared. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really made this sound like such a horrific story and it brought you back to life. But Mm -hmm. I think that once he gets caught, it's so weird when you have this urban legend again, and we're going to talk about this later, about this serial killer and how scary he is and how awful he is and all the horrific things that he did. And then once he's captured, he just looks kind of coy and cool and mm-hmm. kind of collected where it's just so weird that it's you kind of to... don't have the continuous narrative of this evil person. But I thought it was a good documentary. I, I still feel like it is definitely a must-watch, especially if you're not familiar with him. I would say it's a must-watch if you can handle that sort of content. Yeah. If you can't, you know, you can do do a Google and find out all the details about him. How he was caught is really cool. Oh, yeah. Let's just say <laughs> vigilantes, for once, did not make Tori angry. <laughs> I approve of them in this case. 
I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself you should. What's more, Noom believes in nourishing rather than restricting. Noom can help you lose weight while still enjoying your favorite foods, because this approach is about eating well and treating your body right. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So, Karina, a couple of episodes ago, as you probably remember, we got a voicemail from our listener, Damon, slash our Mm -hmm. new best friend. Yes. Hi, Damon. Hi, Damon. Let's listen to the voicemail again really quickly. Hi, uh, my name is Damon, and I'm calling from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I would like you to cover um, something related to the John Wayne Gacy case. Oh, where he talked about possibly having accomplices related to his various crimes. Thanks. Love this podcast so far. Bye. So this idea that John Wayne Gacy might have had accomplices struck me as really weird at first. You know, I was like, Damon, Damon, Damon. I know my serial killers and John Wayne Gacy definitely worked alone. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to do my due diligence. So I started doing some digging and... What I found was that this theory is something that other people have written about or put forth, mainly this lawyer in Chicago named Stephen Becker. So I emailed Stephen Becker and ended up getting on the phone with him in December to talk about this theory. And Karina, he had so much to say that blew my mind. Are you ready to get into it? (laughs) Yes, I'm always into a good true crime conspiracy theory. Talking to him on the phone was, I mean, it really blew my mind. I hung up the phone and was like, wow, what is truth? Yeah. Everything I've been told is a lie. Like you need a full hour just to, who am I? What am I doing here? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I texted my husband in all caps, like, you can't believe anyone (laughs) anymore. (laughs) The corruption goes all the way to the top. So Stephen Becker is a criminal defense lawyer. So he's not normally in the business of representing victims, right? Mm -hmm. But in 2011, he got a visit from a woman named Sherry Marino. And she came into his office with a request for him and also, I'm going to say, a bit of a premonition. So Sherry Marino's son, Michael Marino, went missing on October 24th, 1976. And... A couple years later, John Wayne Gacy was arrested. By 1980, Sherry Marino was told that her son was a John Wayne Gacy victim. She was told that her son was body number 14 from John Wayne Gacy's infamous crawl space. The bodies were numbered in the order that they were discovered, which is a really sick detail that I just learned. But Sherry always had a weird feeling about this. She was just never convinced that body number 14 was her son for a couple reasons. One, her son wasn't identified as a Gacy victim until over a year after Gacy was arrested, Hmm. even though she'd given her son's dental records to the police right away once Gacy was arrested. So she felt weird about that lag time. But here's her suspicion that I find much more compelling. 
Sherry used to visit her son's grave. Mm -hmm. Now, her son was buried in this cemetery that I've actually driven past a million times because I used to live in Chicago and I used to take piano lessons out there. And I hated this cemetery. (laughs) It's called Queen of Heaven. It's in a Chicago suburb called Hillside. And it's beautiful, but in a creepy way. And it's really big and there's ghost stories about it. And I just always hated driving past it. Anyway, Sherry Marina would visit her son's grave there. And whenever she went there, she always noticed that the ground was physically cold. She would touch the ground of her son's grave, and it always felt cold. And she just never believed that her son was buried there. No one ever made a comment to her. No one ever made an assumption. This was all mother's intuition. This was all her mother's intuition. No one—it's not like the police were like, we think body number 14 is your son, but we're not sure. No. She was told that her son was a Gacy victim. She was told that her son was buried in the Queen of Heaven Cemetery. But she just, she just didn't buy it. So in 2011, she knocks on Stephen Becker's door, right? And she's basically like, will you help me? And Stephen Becker is like, this is not really in my wheelhouse. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I'm not in the business of doing exhumations. But yes, I'll help you. And she explained to him how this was all based on her gut feeling. Yes. Tori, I'm really happy that we're having this conversation today because I've been listening to ID's latest podcast, The Clown and the Candyman, and there's also a documentary special that was just released on Discovery Plus with the same name. The shows are about John Wayne Gacy and another serial killer named Dean Coral and the underexplored connection between them. Um, Okay, you're familiar with Gacy because of the podcast, but I want to give you a quick refresher course anyway so we can just hate on him together as a community. Okay, John Wayne Gacy was known for being very gregarious, right? He was like the fun neighborhood guy. Mm -hmm. He's very social. He had a lot of friends involved in local politics, owned a construction company, and as we all know, he performed as a clown at children's parties. Now— It wasn't all, like, fun and games with John Wayne Gacy. One of the weird things that people noticed about him, and I'm gagging as I tell you this, was that his house smelled really bad for years. But he told people that he just had a moisture problem. Now, he owned a construction company, so, like, why would you buy that this guy who is very good at construction is just like, I I have a moisture problem. There's nothing I can do about it. But apparently no one ever pried. Your first logical thought probably isn't, My neighbor has bodies under his house, and that's the smell. Right. You're going to think about anything else first. So in 1978, a man named Robert Piest went missing, and Gacy was the last to have seen him, and this led police to get a search warrant for his house, and that was when they discovered what we now know, that he had a crawl space in which there were 29 bodies of boys and young men. And then in a nearby river, there were four more bodies. So he was caught. He was tried. America was shocked. He was found guilty of all 33 murders. I actually didn't know this. You know how Ted Bundy was tried for the Chi Omega murders, Mm -hmm. even though there were all these other outstanding cases? I'm used to, like, we know he committed X murders, but we tried him for one or something. John Wayne Casey was found guilty of all 33 The jury deliberated for barely two hours, and he was tried as the sole killer. Like, 
It was just John Wayne Gacy on trial. So he goes to prison. He gets really into painting in prison. People to this day collect his paintings. They're sort of hideous pop art. Like he painted clowns. He painted Elvis Presley. He painted JFK. He painted Hitler. And in 1992, he gave an interview with a CBS station, and this is where I found some of these quotes that I'd never seen before, where he just kind of did your typical slippery serial killer denial thing, where he's like, I'm such a good guy. I don't, it's so confusing why this happened to me. Um, he claimed to have taken the maximum amount of truth serum, <laughs> which is just funny because there was no evidence whatsoever <laughs> that he had taken any truth serum. But he's like... Guys, I, I, I took the most you're allowed to have. Like, I'm feeling really <laughs> truthful right now. <laughs> and he claimed that the truth serum showed that he had, quote, no knowledge of the crime whatsoever. It's like, okay, sure, Gacy, you had 29 bodies in your house, but whatever. He also said that he hated being, quote, put in the same club as other serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer. I'm sorry that I'm laughing. It's just funny when serial killers get really, like, fussy to me. (laughs) It's like, oh, you hate being put in the same club as Jeffrey Dahmer? (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) I'm listening and learning, John Wayne Casey. I won't make that mistake again. Okay, the next quote I wanted to read you starts like this. I'm just as lovable and jokeable as I was back then. Are you already enraged, Karina? Yeah. Just with that start. Okay, he goes on. I don't sit around worrying about the death penalty and things like that. If you believe you've lived your life the right way, then you do not have nothing to fear. And he says that all in a Chicago accent. So just just feel John Wayne Gacy sitting around saying that he's lovable and he's lived his life the right way. Infuriating, right? But here's the last quote I wanted to read you. And this one is linked to the mysterious stuff we're about to get into. He said, the media has always contended that there were others involved. Spooky music. So let's go back to Stephen Becker then, my lawyer best friend. Not to be confused with Damon, my listener best friend. So Stephen Becker agrees to represent Sherry Marino, who is the mother of a Gacy victim, question mark. Mm -hmm. She wants to know if the Cook County Medical Examiner's office was correct when they said that Michael Marino was a Gacy victim, right? So Stephen Becker is like, I'm on it. First, he looks at the dental records of Michael Marino and of body number 14, and he finds some discrepancies regarding tooth placement, Mm. heritage. He then files a petition to exhume the body from Tori's least favorite graveyard, Queen of Heaven. He raises funds, and he exhumes the body and tests the DNA. He gets the results on October 24th, 2012, which was, and this was not planned, but it happened to be the anniversary of Michael's disappearance 36 years ago. And the results say that Sherry Marino was not the biological mother of the body in that grave. So every time she was sitting at that grave, thinking that it felt cold and feeling like it wasn't her son in there, she was right. Becker is now like, okay, I've got to find out what happened to Michael Marino, to Mm -hmm. my client's son. And as he's digging into the Gacy case files and looking at things like Gacy's business records, he starts wondering if John Wayne Gacy maybe did not work alone, which Mm. is very contrary to the narrative that the prosecution 
used. Yeah. And even the narrative that the defense used, um, I believe his defense went for the insanity defense. You know, they, they never floated like the idea of like he wasn't guilty because someone else was. It was mm-hmm. more he wasn't guilty because he is insane, which the jury didn't buy. So anyway, here's some stuff that Stephen Becker found that kind of hints at this accomplice theory. He found that according to Gacy's business records, John Wayne Gacy was out of the state when at least three of his victims went missing. So what that implies is that someone else at least did the kidnapping, if not the murder. Gacy could have come back and done the murder. Okay, here's another piece of evidence. There's actually a memoir of a survivor. Someone survived a John Wayne Gacy attack. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. Yeah, his name was Jeffrey Rignall, and he wrote a book called 29 Below about his experience, his nightmare being attacked by John Wayne Gacy. And Rignall says that despite the fact that he was going in and out of consciousness because he had been chloroformed, he remembers another person in the room with John Wayne Gacy, both attacking him. So, you know, that's sort of like a piece of evidence that we can put on the Gacy had accomplices side of the scale. Mm-hmm. And police confirmed him as one of the victims or survivors, I should say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey Rignall, he even testified at the trial. Mm-hmm. Like I said, he was chloroformed, so it wasn't like this crystal clear memory, but yeah, he remembers a second person. So... Becker discovers this, he keeps digging, and then he finds out just this small piece of throwaway information. A nationwide human trafficking ring was operating in Chicago right when Michael Marino went missing. And this trafficking ring, I believe you are starting to learn about in your Clown and the Candyman listening spree. Yeah, they talk about the Chicago ring in the show, but they also talk a lot about different pedophile rings going on at the time. It's so dark. There's this one called the Pedophile Island, which sounds so gross, and it's run by a millionaire named Francis Sheldon. Okay. And they do make a lot of comparisons about how this was kind of the original one, and then when Epstein had the Lolita Express, it was kind of inspired by that one. Mm. They also go into different ones. I feel like each one kind of more darker than the other one, how there was one that involved the Boy Scouts. Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. So they have three episodes where they dig deep into three different pedophile rings that were going on during that time. Okay. The third one is the one that you are going to talk about. So the Chicago trafficking ring was run by John Norman. Have you learned about him yet? Yes, I have. That Mm. was episode five for everyone who's interested. (laughs) Did you happen to look up his photo or any of his mugshots? No, do you want me to? Yes, I want you to see the one where he's like 80. And just tell me, on a scale of one to a thousand, how creepy he looks. (gasps) Oh, Like a thousand. Are you seeing the glasses and the creepy smile? Yeah. Karina, can you just describe it a little bit to our listeners? Yeah. It's it's literally the creepy guy in every movie. He Mm -hmm. has white hair. Mm -hmm. He has huge round glasses. And then he has this really creepy smile. Mm -hmm. But it's like the type of smile where it's open mouth. Only top teeth are showing. Ah, Tori, I hate to be this person, and I'm going to ruin a lot of childhoods, 
but do you know who he reminds me of? Oh, who? The guy Gary from Toy Story. Do you know who that is? No. I'm looking him up right now. Please do. Let me know what you think. There's this scene where he gets Woody, and he's the guy who restuffs Woody and repaints him and fixes him up. Karina! (laughs) He does look like him. Aren't they? With the same smile? And the glasses? Yeah, smile and the, yeah, the white hair and the... I feel like there's something so eerie about that scene now. I don't think he's evil, but as a child, you're like, how dare he repaint the Andy? Yeah, John Norman is, ugh. I don't know why we don't know more about him in the true Mm -hmm. crime world. Um, And apparently there aren't even a lot... A lot of articles about him. This guy existed. Like, you can find articles from the 70s about him and his human trafficking ring. This is not Mm -hmm. a theory. But there's just—he should be more famous as a criminal, if that's a weird thing to say, because of how evil he is. Especially nowadays where—and we Mm -hmm. talked about it in a past episode—there's so many conspiracy theories revolving Mm -hmm. human trafficking and pedophile rings. That's what I always wonder. It's like, there have been documented child trafficking rings, etc. But people just seem to spend a lot of time theorizing about ones that don't exist, like in Mm. the basements of pizza parlors. And it's like, hello, meet John Norman. He was in and out of jail his entire life for things like child pornography. And it's one of those frustrating cases where this is a dangerous man who should have just been locked away his Mm -hmm. whole life, and he never was. So he would pop into jail you know, for two years and pop out and wreak so much havoc. I mean, we could do a whole horrific episode on him, but here's what you need to know about him and Gacy. First of all, he lived three blocks away from the area where Michael Marino went missing. You know, that could mean nothing. That could mean everything. He ran a sex trafficking ring specifically of young boys, which was based out of Chicago, called the Delta Project. And you might know this from the podcast already. Um, The police raided his home twice, once down in Texas and once in Chicago. And both times they found thousands. I'm talking 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 index cards with names of victims and clients on them. Some of these people were high-ranking people that he would sell these boys to. Mm-hmm. And those index cards no longer exist. The ones in Texas were destroyed. The ones in Chicago cannot be located. Stephen Becker has tried. So a lot of sketchy stuff going on with John Norman. John Norman worked with a younger guy who is very violent named Philip Paskey. And Philip Paskey worked for, dun, 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 John Wayne Gacy. So... There is, you know, two degrees between John Wayne Gacy and John Norman, this infamous pedophile who ran this sex trafficking ring. And what Stephen Becker told me, I'm just going to read you the quote from Becker. He said, Philip Paskey was listed as a witness in the state's discovery that was turned over in the Gacy case. I can only assume that he was interviewed by investigators. I can't conceive at all how prosecution failed to make the connection between Gacy and the trafficking ring. Mm -hmm. I think it's a cover-up. I think high-ranking Chicago politicians were involved in the ring. Explosive. So what we know for sure is that the prosecution knew about Philip Paskey, knew that he was an employee of John Wayne Gacy's, and probably talked to him because he was listed as a witness. And then from there, Stephen Becker is kind of putting these pieces together, speculating. Mm -hmm. Is this making sense? I know I'm saying a lot of names. No, yeah, it makes sense. And I just think it's weird how young men are going missing 
-hmm. and boys are going missing. I just don't understand why that connection was never made. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe it's easier in a weird way to go with the lone serial killer theory because it's like then you only have one person to prosecute and one explanation to come up with you know it's like well john wayne gacy was an evil pedophile rapist and killer and that's why there are 33 bodies here yeah i'm not saying john wayne gacy wasn't those things by the way but it's kind of a cleaner narrative than like john wayne gacy worked with this guy who worked with this guy who knew this guy who you know so To sum up Stephen Becker's theory, here's a quote from him, and this is from, um, he published an article in 2016 in this legal journal called The Global Community Yearbook of International Law and Jurisprudence. So his article says a lot of the stuff that he also told me over the phone. In the article, he asks the reader to reconsider the idea that Gacy worked alone, you know, this lone wolf genius serial killer mastermind theory that we're kind of familiar with. And he put forth the theory that Gacy could be, quote, more akin to an undertaker whose home was used not only as a repository for his own unsuspecting victims, but as a cemetery for others, including the needs of the nationwide human trafficking ring and his accomplices to dispose of unwanted or risky human merchandise in Chicago's underground. As I was reading you that quote, I started getting chills because I'm just now remembering there's this famous John Wayne Gacy quote that I've heard a million times. He says, the only crime I'm guilty of is operating a cemetery without a license. (gasps) So I've always interpreted that quote as like, oh, you lying serial killer, like you're just trying to wiggle out of this and, you know, you're being smug or cutesy or whatever. But now with Stephen Becker's theory in my mind, it's like... Maybe Gacy was signaling towards this broader Mm -hmm. ring if it's true that he buried his own victims in his house but also let other people bury theirs. And I like how Becker phrased it like unwanted or risky human merchandise because I think that's how in situations like these, that is how these criminals think of their victims. It's like, oh, this person's going to talk, better kill them. You know, like, this person's getting troublesome, better kill them. And as disgusting as this sounds or gruesome or morbid, Mm -hmm. in human trafficking, victims are seen as a product. They're not seen as people. So it does make sense why he would use the wording merchandise as gross as it sounds. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he's not using it because he thinks that's what they are, but... Um, because that's how they were treated. Right. Stephen Becker thinks that the reason that Chicago authorities kind of don't want to listen to him about any of this is because it goes against the Gacy mythos. That was his mm. phrase. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know the Gacy mythos. It's like, just think about how many books and shows and podcasts are yeah. <laughs> written about well, John Wayne Gacy alone. It takes away from the urban legend of John Wayne Gacy and this killer clown mm-hmm. who killed young men and boys. Right. If Gacy had accomplices, do you think that makes him scarier or less scary? I think it is scarier because of the thought that it was human trafficking. And that's really horrific to know that so many young men and boys were being victimized at such a large scale. Mm -hmm. And for it to go unnoticed and uncovered and kind of let go. So where things stand now with Sherry Marino 
our hero, is Stephen Becker is trying to get her DNA introduced into the National Database System for Missing Persons. Mm. And what this would do is, you know, if, God forbid, Michael Marino has died um, and is a John Doe somewhere, getting her DNA into the system could help her find that and Mm -hmm. get some closure. And until then, or until someone comes forward and says something, we don't know what happened to Michael Marino, and we don't know who body number 14 is. So have police reverted? Have they kind of unlinked no? No, they they won't change the death certificate for body number 14 to say that it's not Michael Marino. They want to do their own exhumation and uh, their own DNA test, and they want to interview or re-interview Sherry Marino and her daughter. And Stephen Becker doesn't want them to do this because, you know, Sherry's his client and he thinks that would be very traumatizing. Mm -hmm. So he wants them to accept his exhumation and his DNA evidence and change the death certificate. And they are dragging their feet. That's awful. Because there's also a family out there who body 14 could belong to them and that could be their family member. And they don't get that sense of knowing what happened. And then on the other side, you also have Jerry Marino. Now -hmm. she has no idea what happened to her son. Right. She has an answer, but then it opens up a whole Pandora's box of questions, really. It's really, like, sad to think about just how much trauma he caused to so many families who are still traumatized to this day and who don't know. And it's just amazing how much damage one man or a man and accomplices can do. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to end with this quote from Stephen Becker's Law Journal article because I really liked it. I think you will too. He ends his article with this. It bears keeping in mind what the enduring love of a mother for her son and a little DNA can do toward utterly destroying the unwarranted fame and legacy of a man who will undoubtedly be relegated to the lowest circles of Dante's hell. Tori, on last week's show, we went deep into the federal death penalty. Despite a flurry of last-minute legal activity, the Trump administration carried forward with three final executions. That's 13 in total over the last year. The last to be executed was Dustin Higgs, whose story we talked about. He died at 1.23 a.m. on January 16th. Yeah, Karina, last week was tough when it came to this news because I think a lot of us were hoping that some of these appeals would stick or Mm -hmm. that something would happen. And I remember last week for each one of these executions, each one got pushed back very late into the night. I'm sure Mm -hmm. you noticed they were scheduled, all scheduled at 6 p.m., I think, and all ended up taking place like in the wee small hours of the morning. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was so strange to go to bed thinking I'm going to wake up and know if this person was killed by the government or not. That's that's exactly how I was feeling. And I stayed up for as late as I could on Friday and I kept Mm. refreshing Twitter and seeing what everyone was saying. I did try writing emails and calling and helping in any way that I could. And I think that for a split second, I did have some kind of hope that things would Mm -hmm. change because it was taking so long. And I hope that I would wake up in the morning and it was to good news. And honestly, I was was really shocked when I saw that he was executed 
Mm -hmm. because his case is just a representation of how broken our system is. Mm -hmm. And it's not just because of his execution, but way back into his childhood and the abuse that he suffered and everything that he went through. And then how unjust I felt the case was presented in court and the lack of information that the jury received. And then to just see the whole process of it, it, it's just really shocking to see that this is how it ended. Yeah, very, very sad news. One of the things that I saw on Twitter, I bet you saw this too. Did you see any of the footage of the group of activists who always wait outside the prison every time there's an execution? No, I didn't see it. (sighs) It's very moving. So it's this group of people. There's a nun there, um, some regular citizens, journalists, and they they wait in the parking lot of a Dollar General, which is across the street from the penitentiary in Terre Haute. And they sort of hold vigil and they ring a bell. It's so sad. They wait to see when the white vans carrying the journalists move. Mm-hmm. And, and that means like the execution is underway. And they, they ring a bell and they say the names of the victims. And they have these signs, you know, protesting the death penalty. And they just like hold a vigil throughout the night in these cases. And you can see some of the journalists who are there posting video clips on Twitter is very emotional. You know, um, my dad, he's a lawyer. And growing up, I used to ask him like, oh, did you win a case today? Or how many Mm -hmm. cases have you won? And something that he would always tell me is like, no one wins. And I think that this is the perfect example of it. Tangie Jackson, one of the victims, her sister released a statement. And I want to read a little bit of it. Yeah. So she writes and she says, When we received the news that you were given a date, it brought up mixed emotions. On one hand, I felt we were finally going to get justice. But on the other, I felt sad for your family. They're now going to go through the pain we experienced. When the day is over, your death will not bring back my sister and the other victims. This is not closure. This is a consequence of your actions. And I think that this just shows how all this does is bring pain. Like, Mm -hmm. the world didn't magically become a better place. Crime didn't go down. Nothing good really came out, except now you have more people experiencing pain. Yeah, yeah. No one's pain went away when when Dustin Higgs was executed. Mm -hmm. But I know his sister was there. Did you read that she got to see him for the first time in, like, 20 years? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's like, no family's pain went away, but... And now another family's pain increase. It's just, just like your dad said, no one wins. If you want to spark a conversation here at Red Flags, make sure to call our hotline 1-88-9-R-E-D-F-L-A. That's 1-88-973-3352. For more true crime conversations, be sure to check out ID on Twitter at Discovery ID or on Instagram and TikTok at Investigation Discovery. And you can ask us questions on our own Instagram feeds too. I'm at Tori underscore underscore Telfer. And I am at the Karina Michelle. Thanks for listening today. Red Flags is a production of Investigation Discovery and Audiation. For ID, our executive producer is Marissa Lucy. For audiation, our executive producers are Sandy Smollins and Michael Wolfson. 
Mark Lotto is our story editor, Ireland Meacham is our producer, and Brad Stratton is our editor-mixer. Theme music by Marty Beller. Audiation. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.